Podcast. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. You are listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity. And you can get yourself a free copy of the magazine by heading to premierchristianity.com slash free sample. I'm Ruth Jackson and I've been speaking to Dan and Joe Watson, who are the youth and young adult pastors at Hillsong London. We spoke about parenting, youth work and how they do ministry together. Yeah, well, I'm on staff, but Joe does most of the work. So. <laughs> you get all the glory, yeah, yeah. you get one free. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and you are a married couple. I mean, how does that dynamic work, being married but also co-pastoring youth? Both got different strengths, and so they work together. They complement each other. It's definitely changed over the years because we've had kids in the last three four, years. three and a half. Yeah. She's going to be four in July. Yeah. In the last three and a half years, <laughs> we've had kids. And so that's definitely brought a, a new dynamic, which has more changed, I guess, my role and how hands-on or just present I am in in meetings and how it works is different so it's not like we both passed it together as in we both go into the office and we run meetings together yeah. and all this kind of stuff so we carry different responsibilities but ultimately I'm on staff for that role to do that role and mm-hmm. so I carry the weight of that but together in a partnership we pastor our young people tell us a little bit about the structure at Hillsong because I think I'm right in saying that the staff team is actually much smaller than you would think for it's a church way of its size. small yeah so we have 12 campuses in the UK and then let's say on that staff for the youth there's seven staff that cover everything and so all our youth leaders our youth workers they're all volunteers they all have other jobs doing other things and so mm. they're absolutely amazing so they give up their time their energy to just serve the young people and so we on our youth team we probably around we've got around about three four hundred yeah, youth team incredible. Um, oh wow! We could ac- not across do our campuses. anything without them. Really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're incredible. And how do you find those volunteers? People that come to church say, I've got a passion for young people and I'd love to serve, I'd love to play a part. That's all different capacities. So some people, you know, you've got some students that have got so much time and then you've got one of our guys, he works in the cabinet office and he doesn't have as much time, but there's stuff that he does and, and can do. And, and so it works in different capacities. So people just say, I want to I want to serve, I want to help young people. And then they, they join team. So do you sort of regularly meet up with those volunteers and give them the vision, the Yeah, passion? so as uh, youth pastors uh, nationally, we'll meet with everyone once a month. So that's everybody. We'll meet with our staff team every every single day. But we'll meet with our uh, whole team like once a month. And then within that, there's like, it's breaking down into different age groups, different demographics. And so then they'll meet with their team and then they meet with their people. But we're able to sit with everyone, share a whole vision, a whole structure. Uh, you know, this is where we're headed. But then underneath that, there's different leadership levels and people, everyone is cared for, everyone's known. How did you guys get into youth work? I, at a really young age, actually like 16, 17, found myself, myself in a youth and I was one of the youth leaders there at the time I looked over chaos it was called because it was chaos that was like <laughs> the 11 to 14 and I was a youth leader there I absolutely loved it I never really felt like oh I'm really passionate about young people I just loved my church and I was in the youth and I loved my youth they knew me it was always fun it was engaging it was a place I wanted to go it was a place I wanted to invite my friends so naturally I guess like when I got to the age of I should be being kicked out of youth I was like I want to <laughs> longer let me be a youth leader which is what all of our youth leaders want to do but yeah I kind of found myself in it there then I, I actually moved away from youth work as I grew older I went into primary school kind of working there and then ended up working with younger adults and then we kind of fell back into 
youth and young adults. Well. People yeah. always come back to youth work. Always suck some back suck in. You in. <laughs> the funny thing is, I felt like I was called to be a youth pastor. I had this dream that I wanted to be a youth pastor when I was like 17, 18 years old. I never actually became a youth pastor until I was 30 years old. But the passion of young people has always stayed the same. And so working that out, whether I was a school teacher or a youth worker doing other stuff, like it's always been about young people. It's yeah. always been about helping that age demographic. And so I guess for both of you, you've worked with young people in a more secular environment yeah. Yeah. and you now work in predominantly a church environment how have you seen the difference between working with young people who don't know Jesus and working with young people who you are actively discipling it's a huge difference I think identity is a massive one you know like the book talks a lot about the fear of failure fear of rejection all these different things but I think a lot of that comes down to our identity we've got society is in an identity crisis who are we are we good enough we're always looking for like who's going to tell us who we are I guess the difference is that you know for young people who know who they are in God even when the world speaks lies over them or just they're receiving bad news and stuff they go back to actually what the word says and they've got hope in that they've got a confidence in that my job as a pastor is to encourage you in your faith and point you towards Jesus then you'll understand who he says you are that you'll start to develop in that and walk it out for yourself in the hope that you'll do the same for someone else you're going to point someone towards Jesus and you're and encourage them in their faith and so for us that's a big part of our mission and I guess you know in terms of identity that is that whole thing of knowing who Christ says you are like knowing that you're fearfully made in his image and so if we can do that then um, I think we can have a have a real difference in society. Why do you think young people are so fearful? Do you think they're more fearful today than they have been in the past? I think it's probably more prominent because they're more exposed to different things. Like everything's like more accessible, social media, you know, even the TV. Like when I was growing up, we didn't have social media. We didn't have the phone, so you couldn't stay in constant uh, contact with someone. And so you had, a, I guess, a break. You could just be. But now there's this comparison side of life that is becoming unhealthy if you don't wrestle it, if you don't capture it. And so young people, I guess, are constantly, not even young people, all people, are constantly comparing themselves to something else, to someone's highlight reel or someone's show reel. And they're going, I should be like that, but I'm not. And so they're, they're striving to be. And in the striving to be, that's where, you know, you've got the fear of rejection kicking in, the fear of loneliness, because I want to be known, but I'm still all alone. Like as in, I've got 10,000 followers, but no one actually knows me. And I'm putting out this image of only a little bit of who I am and so I think a, a lot of that comes from the whole acceptance issue what do you think I think the fear has probably always been there but now we can talk about it more it probably looks different and we have social media now so it stems from maybe different things that it did back then but I think if, we, if we're looking at where rejection comes from everything else then I guess that fear has always been there because people have always been wanting to be accepted we talked about that inbuilt desire for everyone to find that sense of belonging and to find that sense of acceptance and how do you think we help young people to combat those fears? I think ultimately we have to example life to them as well. And I think sometimes if as adults, older people, youth leaders, youth workers, whatever it is, if we're always painting a picture that life is rosy and it's all good, then young people are never going to understand how do I actually tackle my struggle? Because yeah. they don't seem to have any struggles. And so if we can journey with people, discipleship, life, community, fellowship, if we can just journey with people and show, yeah, life happens and we all have fear, but because of Christ and Christ in me and the, what he says about me, this is how I'm overcoming it. This yeah. is what I'm doing in my day-to-day -day life to tackle it. And it doesn't mean that you're never going to face it in life, but you're actually understanding and equipping yourselves with different tools to go, every day I can do this, every day I can overcome. How do 
do you think we get that balance as youth workers, sort of taking off the filter of our lives and living authentic lives? But mm. you obviously want to be wise. Yeah, you want to be wise and you don't want to spill everything to yeah. your young people. It would be unwise to say, this is what's going on, this is what's happening and I'm a mess. You know, all the ins and outs, all that kind of stuff. But you guys say, listen, we actually, maybe not even talking about your life specifically as in this is what I'm going through. But you can go, you know, we all go through stuff like this and you can highlight things. And you say, but this is what this, this is what the Bible says. And so you're not making stuff a taboo subject. If you're talking about what people watch on the internet or something like that, we're making it a subject that people struggle with that. But this is these are the tools that you're going to put into your life. And so it's about being able to talk about it, but equipping young people with tools to deal with it. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes if we're just so openly talking about all stuff that's going on in their lives, but we haven't got tools to help people, that's not wisdom. That's, mm-hmm. that's not helping someone. Hillsong is quite unique in that you've got a thriving youth group you're obviously making god relevant to those young people how do we do that i think it's again number one displaying the character of god in our lives number two is just take the example of jesus right when he was talking about his works or the heavenly father he was talking about it in a language that the people of that time could understand it was all about agriculture all that kind of stuff and so they understood that was relevant to them at that time if we talk about that now you know a young person in london is not going to understand what you're saying do you know what i mean the harvest is ripe. what do you mean the harvest <laughs> yeah. is ripe? what are you talking about but if you start talking in a language that they understand with the same heart and principles and everything that Jesus is trying to convey and get across then now you're connecting you're not modifying the gospel you're just you're speaking it in a language that people can understand and if you can get that connection then people go actually this is relevant to my life and now Mm. because it's relevant to my life I can open up the Bible and start to understand and I think we try and do that in our in our messages we you know we try and speak in a language that Mm. an 11 year old an 18 year old they can understand and they can apply it to their lives yeah it's looking at their everyday world isn't it and seeing like what are they going through and how do you make that line up with with the word of God and show God in it we always say you know the message never changes but the method has to because we've got to make it applicable to our young people and how do you think we reach the young people outside of our churches I think you have to get outside the church go to where the young people are we run schools programs where are most young people in school and so like for us that's one of our biggest mission grounds you want to call it that is that we go into schools and we get to speak that message of hope of life of acceptance of grace and so going to schools there's estates around everywhere that you can connect with young people and so it's about not just gathering everyone inside the the four walls for a great night but it's actually equipping them so they've got tools to go out and change their world and change their society so you think the key is the young people themselves being the evangelists? Yeah, because that's their friends, isn't it? I could head into a school and talk, but you're a 31-year-old dude, and there's an 11-year-old kid, there's some generation gap. You get another kid that age, and they're going to be like, why are you living that way? Like, yeah. you're going through the same things I'm going through. What is it about your life? And if we can equip those young people to be the hands and feet, to be the voice, then I reckon you can have a great reach in schools. One of the things that I used to love was my youth pastor. The church that I was in didn't have any money. It wasn't glitz and glam didn't look great but a youth pastor was amazing the youth team were amazing the people there there was like 20 people in youth but they created an atmosphere that I wanted to belong to they believed in me they championed me they looked out for me I was known they would speak life into me they would have fun they would invite me anybody can do that you don't need a building you don't need money you don't need lights you don't need a band you don't need a big team it just needs you to be the person that is going to be attractive. And so am I an attractive representation of Jesus? Am I walking that out? The best things that we do are not our youth nights or whatever. 
there are small group crews yeah that is done in someone's house or in mcdonald's or in the park they're the best things to do because you what you're doing is you're creating an authentic relationship an authentic community yeah where a young person can belong and now because they they understand they belong and they're accepted they actually go oh, what is it you believe again and so everybody can do that so you sort of touched on it there let's talk a little bit about your lives what was your experience of god growing up i grew up with two christian parents both went to bible college felt like my dad had a hotline to jesus <laughs> he was like the perfect <laughs> christian who had a hotline to jesus i mean he didn't i mean he did but we all do <laughs> but i felt like that i was like oh my gosh my dad's like this perfect christian and i was one of six kids we all went to church I guess I didn't really until I got a bit older question that actually do I have a relationship with Jesus or is it just that I've always grown up knowing and hearing about God but it didn't actually become real to me until I was around about 16 and at a youth night I was in a great church and actually they did have quite a big youth ministry at the time and they did nights which were incredible I remember us all doing crazy things but they're not the things that actually stick out it's the small youth camps where you went away and you had those vulnerable conversations with people there what come back to my mind and I think I used to go to this camp every year and it was literally in the middle of a field we slept in tents you went to the toilet outdoors (laughs) it was gross but it was incredible and when I think back they are the significant moments in my life where I think I met with Jesus then and he became real to me and I I learned things about him that I might have heard and I might have read in the bible or had them read to me but they weren't real until I grew up and I went to small things like that or I got into groups of discussion with people and it became real. Do you think there was something about being away from your parents that was a significant thing in that decision? Definitely and I think I was really painfully painfully shy growing up. I used to only sit next to my mum and dad in church and it was literally when I broke away and that was almost forced by people in the youth like come on come and sit with us this week come on and I kept saying no 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 and eventually I thought they keep asking I'm gonna have to sit with them and it was from that time when I kind of broke away and went okay now I can't fall back on my mum and dad's relationship with God I need to actually have I need to question do I know Jesus or am I just relying on other people's relationships with him how about you Dan I kind of grew up in church my mum was a Christian my dad wasn't I was always exposed to that that life I always go to church with my mum. And then I reckon maybe like at the age of 15, 16, 17, I kind of like bailing out a little bit. I would turn up to youth or church on a Sunday maybe, but then I was just living this other life. And then I got arrested at 17. I won't tell you what for, but I got arrested at 17. <laughs> and um, Watch your pockets. Yeah. <laughs> and then um, I remember just being in that police cell and I was like, I can either listen to what the world is saying about me. I should be a statistic because of, you know, I grew up in a violent home, absent father, all of this. And this is what the world says my life should be, which I was in that police cell heading that way or I could listen to what God says my life should be, what I've been listening to in the church. So I remember then I, like, I just made a decision, all right, I'm going this way, I'm going with Jesus. And from there, that's how my relationship with Jesus just grew. And I was like, I'm, I'm going all in. And so every, everything that we've been about, because we've known each other since we was 14. So everything we've been about since that time, started dating at 17, has been about building the church and um, yeah. or just making sure that we're in good relationship with Jesus. Tell us more about that. How did you guys meet? There used to be something called Flamethrowers, which was like part of the Youth Alive. They used to do these small missions around the UK, so UK-based missions. And uh, they had one at Dan's church in Dagenham because it needed reaching. I mean, everywhere yeah. does. That. My, my mum would call it Darjinham. 
<laughs> he tries to be posh. But our youth group decided to go on mission to Dagenham. So you go for like a week. Everyone camps out in church and basically we go out into the community, play football, meet young people and invite them to a night on the Friday night, which would be an evangelistic night. So we actually met at that. Dan saw me. She was dancing and I was drumming. I mean, like not just randomly dancing. We no, would... She was da- in a dance <laughs> in, in like a dance <laughs> Yeah. And I was drumming and, you know, she looked at me and thought, wow. <laughs> and so I became friends with her brother from that moment. Tactic. Knowing full well that was the Knowing all I needed was, you know, was to get in there. <laughs> hey, let me visit you in Bolton, but check her out. Not at 14. And so we were just like, be friends. We would text. We'd meet each MSN. other. We'd meet each other like every year at different Youth Alive national events, all that kind of stuff. And then I was dating a girl. And I remember we were texting and she was like, I don't think this girl is like godly enough for you. That is not true. So anyway, so then I split up with this girl and then maybe a few weeks later we started dating. I do remember that Dan was not necessarily a relationship, but talking about this girl, but he was saying things and I was like, well, maybe she's not the best thing for you right now. But but with no ulterior motive. (laughs) So we started dating at 17. We got married at 21. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, this will be our 11th year of marriage. Yeah. And you've got two kids now. Yeah, they're amazing. We'll come on to parenting in a sec, but yeah. how do you prioritise each other when you've got two little people who are constantly vying for your time? Well, they're only there because of us. That's <laughs> <laughs> the pecking order. I think, you know, for ages I used to think, okay, this is a really busy season. This is a really busy season. Let's have a date night. Let's do this. Let's do this. And try and start out a diary that way. Then I realised our life is actually just full because we want people in it and we want to make a difference. So it's always going to be full. But then that changes from a season to a lifestyle. So we've got a figure out how to make that work mm. and so for us it's not like okay monday is our date night but actually it looks really different so we kind of have a rhythm to the weeks and for us it's not necessarily like okay we're going to get five hours together on this day but we might just have moments where we're like okay right now we have an hour where there's no one and we can have a drink together or we can just have a quick coffee and catch up about life but we try and really appreciate those moments so it's mm. changing the way that we now view our quality time so it's not about the amount quality. of yeah quantity but for me I think I could have had five quality minutes in the morning that can change the day instead of like we could have an evening together but we'll both shattered and fall asleep on the sofa but we had five hours together but it wasn't necessarily quality and I think it's always under, for us understanding that it is, a, it is a lifestyle yeah and so sometimes in life there are things that require your time and you just have to work with how it goes and so that's why we it's never annoyance where we go okay this week is like mad busy but I think the key is constant communication and bringing each other in on the journey it'll be very easy for me to exclude Joe from a lot of the stuff that I'm doing on the business but bring her in on the journey this is what life looks like she brings me in on her stuff and we just we make it all work we try yeah like Joe said I don't think there's a set Monday night we do this and Tuesday night because yeah. it changes and yeah. um, people may want to have dinner or they may need to talk and so we just accommodate life we have this saying that as, as long as we're alright it's alright so no matter what's happening in life no matter what's been thrown our way as long as we're alright it's alright we can do it I think this as well it, there has got to be an understanding that we're in this like Dan has always felt called to ministry from a really young age we, we joke about it and people laugh but before we even started officially dating Dan said to me I know that I'm going to be called to a life of ministry and this that, was at 17 years yeah, old yeah literally at 17 years old very mature I'm 17 years old yeah, well, I'm a I, godly man <laughs> humble as well uh, <laughs> yeah he said I feel like I'm called to a life of ministry and that might mean that I'm away from home a lot or life's going to look different you need to know now whether you're in with that I go back to that and think I knew that we wanted to serve God by loving people and loving people takes time and energy and sacrifice and so 
do we want to do that? It's kind of always coming back to that. Mm. Is this what we want to do? That's why there's never any resentment with family life, church, whatever. It just all works because we've both got an understanding like we're in this together. This yeah. this is our life. This is what we're called to do. This is our mission. And how we make it work won't necessarily look like how other people yeah. make it work for their family. It might look very different, but for us right now, it's working. And you guys have obviously been youth pastors for a long time. Does that mean that you know everything there is to know about parenting? Oh no way. It's <laughs> no. a new kettle of fish altogether. <laughs> no, like youth pastor is like teenagers, but we got little brothers. We got yeah. little girls. She's three and a half, and our little boy is one, going on seventeen. I feel like we're already getting like a glimpse into what teenage years could be like with Jude. But Bella's like an angel. I feel there's a difference between being a youth leader, a youth worker, and being a parent. Youth leader, youth worker, you're the cool, you're the cool person who you try and be, and you spend a certain amount of time with that that young person, and it could be very targeted in what you're talking about or you know whatever. But a parent is like, man, I've got. I really got to teach you life. I've got to be able to get that balance of disciplining. And like, like even when a little girl started being a little bit naughty, I'm like, oh my gosh, how? What do we do? No, yeah. I actually have to parent. Like, I, don't, I need to correct her. And you, you learn that as you go along. You look to people who are ahead of you in the journey and you notice that you start including other people into your life a little bit more and going, all right, how did you do that? Or I'm, I'm going through this. And you just get wise counsel from different places and, and you just figure it out. That's the key thing as well. Even anything in life, it's very important who you get wisdom from. It it doesn't just necessarily mean you get wisdom from older people. You've got to get wisdom from people who you aspire to be like. And they could be different people for different things in their life. I could aspire to be like a certain pastor and then I could aspire to be like a certain parent and they could be different things. And so you get wisdom from those different people and you apply it to your life and you figure out your the culture of your house. How do you guys do faith? at home it's not a time of like okay now we're gonna sit down and read a devotion but it's ongoing it's it's teaching like forgiveness from a young age like I've got cross sometimes and I might have shouted and said actually Bella I need to apologize because mummy shouldn't have shouted then and got angry and it's teaching those little things from a young age on a level that is relatable and understandable to them and like Bella came home from kids church this week and we are so privileged to have kids church who they invest and they love our kids and the kids in church incredibly but Bella came home this week and she's like, Mummy, do you know that the Ark of God will protect you? And it is amazing. And I was like, the Ark of God? What are you talking about? And then I realized she's talking about the armor of God. So then we're like <laughs> talking about the armor of God. But little things like that open up big conversations. She might come home from nursery and, you know, she says a phrase. And I say, oh, that's not how we speak in this house. Because actually we we really want to speak kind words and, and words of, of like loving to each other. And so it's teaching in a different way. And you just make it part of your conversation party yeah. that was stick on the kids worship and she loved they loved that we had a dance party this morning yeah of just kids everyone worship. brushing their teeth everyone dancing i remember one time i said to her Bella, you, you know i made you she said no jesus made me <laughs> why do you think it's so important that we properly invest right from the age of naught with our kids and youth they're the next generation and they are the generation of now they're the ones that are going to make all the decisions they're the ones that you know they're the ones going to be leading Future our churches leaders. and then also i feel like you know imagine if someone told you at that age about jesus or everything that you could be or who Jesus says that you are imagine what life would look like now imagine how you could have overcome some of the struggles that you went through if we can hit young people at that age then we can equip them for life and they can do life better and so not even the fact that there's going to be the next leaders or whatever but you're actually going I'm setting you up for a win in your life and you know I wish that at some point some people did that to me but now if I can do that for you again you can see a change in society how do you guys prioritize your own relationship with God you have to create time you have to go have I got a rhythm to this you know I'll make sure that my prayer life is strong my communication to God doesn't mean that I'm 
going to sit in my room for two hours and pray. But my communication to God is strong. I'm leaning on his word that I'm constantly studying in terms of devotion. And that could look different. Like sometimes I'll just go and sit in, in a coffee shop and I'll just I'll read and study. And then there's a difference between devotion and study. So study, I'm learning something to further my knowledge. Devotion then is I'm getting in this to apply to my life so I can grow in the ways and wisdom of God. And so making sure those two things happen and you have to put that in your calendar. You have to make sure that is a part of your day. You have to set it up just as much as you want to go to the gym, just as much as you're about to have lunch. And it's different for everyone. It definitely looks different now. I've got two kids. Before I would definitely prioritise and go to a coffee shop and sit for like two hours and read. And It's very rare that I get those times <laughs> now. I might get like 10 minutes in the car where the kids are sleeping and I have 10 minutes and I have to prioritise that time and think actually I need to invest into me now in order to make me a better mom, a better wife, a better me, to be able to cope with my emotions, to be able to cope with everything. Like it actually takes sacrifice because we can all so easily say, oh, we've not got any time. I've not got any time. There's no time in the day. But that is time. It might just be pockets of time. But it's like the quality time. You can have two minutes of quality time with God in worship that can change everything about your day. Or you can think, I've got no time. And I think for me, I've got, I, I try and find those pockets throughout my day, whether it's on the way to school, nursery in the morning, say, okay, Bella, let's pray for the day. Or, you know, just little things, little parts of my day. But then also prioritizing like time in the month or every two weeks where I'll say to a friend or Dan, can you, two hours, you have the kids, I'm going out. And that's my time where I'll really just soak up everything I need to soak up. But yeah, it looks different. And even in that, in that season, like you could go, all right, we've got the kids and the kids are crazy up until about 7.30 p.m. But at 7.30, 8 p.m., that's when we're going to watch the Netflix series but you go all right i'm not going to do that in this season because just as much as i make sure that i eat i need to make sure that i get the word of god on my time so now for this season netflix see you later that's my time yeah. um and so sometimes again it's that ebb and flow of life where you just need to make sure everything works if you could go back to your sort of 14 15 year old self and give yourself any wisdom what would it be? Well, I was really shy and like, just actually when I think about it, really insecure. I just tell myself, don't hold on to what people say about you. Don't hold on to the labels that put on you. And it sounds so cliche, but don't be afraid to actually think bigger and just dare to do it. And if you mess up, get up again and actually be brave. Don't just read it on paper and think, oh, that's a good statement, but just do it, just be it and see what happens. Mine sounds really um, cheesy, cliche. But it, would, it would be love bit cheese. Who who doesn't love right? bit cheese? It would be um, literally live for the audience of one, mm. and that approval that's what matters. I think I spent a lot of time trying to seek approval and get acceptance, and I, I think I, a lot of time and energy went into that rather than understanding that approval from God is what I had and is what I've always needed. You have been listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity. You can get yourself a free copy of the magazine by heading to premierchristianity.com slash free sample. Christianity Magazine, in this month's issue. I've only ever been told two things about sin, says Nick Page. It's bad and don't do it. In the latest issue, he shares seven helpful tips on how to stop sinning. Liz Carter explains how she's learnt the secret of contentment, despite many years spent suffering in hospital. Pete Gregg, the founder of the 24-7 prayer movement, teaches us to pray. And Joshua Harris tells us why he's pulping his best-selling Christian book. Plus, we talk to the Christians who are deconstructing their most cherished beliefs as we ask the question, can faith survive doubt? For your free copy, visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio.
Well, hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. The Profile is the show where we delve into a person's life, faith and ministry and it's brought to you in association with the UK's leading Christian magazine. It's Premier Christianity magazine. If you would like a free sample copy of our latest edition, you can head to our website, premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. But today on The Profile, here on Premier Christian Radio, I'm pleased to say I'm speaking to Mark Taylor. Mark has been president and CEO of Tyndale House Publishers since 1984. He's been involved in publishing most of his life since his parents started the company when he was 11 years old. Mark served as chief stylist and director for the Bible Translation Committee for the New Living Translation. His father, Kenneth N. Taylor, paraphrased the Living Bible. He and his wife, Carol, have five grown children, and I'm pleased to say that Mark joins me in the studio now. Mark, welcome to the program. Thank you, Sam. Nice to be with you. So for those who haven't come across Tyndale House in the past, can you give us a bit of an overview? As I said in the, in the introduction, you know, your parents started the company when you were just 11 years old. So I guess in that sense, you've been involved right from the beginning. Yes, I have publishing in my blood, because even before my parents started Tyndale House, My dad was the director of Moody Press, the publishing arm of Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. So my whole life I've been associated with publishing. And Tyndale House Publishers is, we think, the largest privately held Christian publishing company probably in the world doesn't make us all that big, but... That's uh, still pretty big. I mean, especially, I guess, in, in America, where I know your your books will sell many thousands more copies than they would here in the UK just by the, the nature of the size of the country. So, so whereabouts in the US did you grow up? In Wheaton, Illinois, which is near Chicago. I've lived there all my life. In fact, I live just uh, three houses away from where I grew up as a child. So you've stuck around in the neighborhood. That's right. And presumably over the years, you've held a number of different roles and jobs. So you say, you know, as a youngster, you were packing boxes and and now you're CEO. And presumably in between, there's been all sorts of different roles. So have there been elements of the job that you've enjoyed more than others? Because one would imagine you've had quite a varied role through the years. Yes, it has been quite varied. Uh, Oddly enough, I first got involved in editorial work when I was a senior in high school so uh, 17 years old, my father handed me a manuscript and said, here, try your hand at editing this. No training, (laughs) no guidance as to how one goes about doing that, but I found that I took to it rather naturally. When I look at all of the different roles that are involved in publishing, editorial is the part that I've been Uh, most closely associated with besides just overall Mm. management kinds of issues. I noticed that one of the one of the first I think the first book in fact that Tyndale published was actually by Tim LaHaye who's um, who's I guess best known for authoring the Left Behind co-authoring the the Left Behind series which I know Tyndale also published. Someone like that talking of your editorial involvement in some circles, quite a controversial kind of person. You know, I noticed that, uh, uh, you know, he, according to, to some online sources, uh, he believed that the Illuminati is secretly controlling world affairs, talked about a sort of new world order. And the reason I bring this up is is you mentioned sort of editorial and, and how much uh, 
of the role is is sort of figuring out well, who do we publish and why is there is there a statement of faith or would you um, always say yes if they're kind of a Christian or is it just based on the kind of book how do you make those sorts of decisions because you know someone like Tim De- uh, someone like Tim LaHaye incredibly popular author as I mentioned the Left Behind series but also quite controversial in some cases yes you've put your finger right on a key issue in the world of publishing and that is how do we decide what books to publish, whom to publish? And we look at ourselves certainly as a Christian publishing company. We use the term evangelical mm. to describe ourselves. But I like to say that we represent the broad center of the evangelical part of the Christian church. So we're not interested in publishing people who are kind of uh, way off at either end of the extreme. Now, some people would suggest that Tim LaHaye is out on one end mm. of the extreme. But um, when you mentioned Left Behind, that became a phenomenally popular series of books. Interestingly, though, it just started out as being just one book. Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins envisioned what might happen uh, to people who are left behind at the time of the rapture. And then as they got into writing, they felt there was more and more and more Mm -hmm. of the story to tell. And when I first saw the proposal for that first book, Left Behind, I was just absolutely taken with the ideas that uh, Tim and Jerry mm. were presenting here. Was was this the first time or one of the first times that someone had kind of approached a publisher and said, we want to write fiction, but based on one possible reading of the end times? I mean, just that as a kind of genre strikes me as quite unusual. There had been various books and even some uh, movies um, around that theme, but I think Tim and Jerry did a great job of fleshing it out. Mm. Yeah, hugely successful uh, series. Is that the most popular series of books that Tyndale has ever published? Or Well, ones? apart from the Bible. Apart from the Bible. You know, you mentioned a minute ago that Tim LaHaye was the first author that we published. That's mm. true in terms of books. Yes. But Tyndale actually started with the publication of Living Letters, yes. which was a paraphrase of the New Testament epistles. My father had done that paraphrasing Uh, back in the days when he was at Moody Press, and he decided to publish it himself because he couldn't find any other publishers who would take a risk on this book called Living Letters. Mm. So with his publishing background, although he had no money, he said, we'll print 2,000 copies and see if we can sell them through the Christian bookshops. So that was literally the beginning of Tyndale House Publishers Mm. in 1962, and the first warehouse was my bedroom. <laughs> um, and if I'm right, am I right in thinking the Living Letters would go on to basically become the Living Bible? That's right. I mean, the Living Bible was hugely popular. I know in this country, and even more so in, in America, it was the most. It was the best-selling book in all of America in 1973, 74, and 75. What made that translation of the Bible, the Living Bible, what made that so popular in your view? You know, when you think back to that time period of the 1960s, 70s, most people were still using the King James Version, the authorized version. And that is pretty difficult to understand for several reasons. One, it uses vocabulary that seems rather antiquated to us today. 
It uses uh, terms like thee and thou and uh, verb endings, goest and goeth, mm. that kind of thing. Yeah. But also the, the uh, philosophy of translation that's represented in the authorized version is what could be called close to a word-for-word kind of translation from the Hebrew or the Greek New Testament. And as a result, when you read the King James Version, as beautiful as it is, it's really kind of stilted English because it follows the word order that's more closely associated with the Hebrew or the Greek than English. So back to your question, why was the Living Bible so popular? I think it was because it was so radically different from the authorized version. Mm. People read it and said, oh, I didn't know you could really understand the Bible. (laughs) I thought it was just this, you know, very, very difficult thing to read, which in fact it had been for hundreds of years. We're obviously now at a point in history where there's there's never been more English language translations. And I'm aware there are many people around the world, in, in your country and mine, working towards translating the Bible for those who have never had even one translation in their own language. Um, how should we understand this disparity where we have countries that don't even have a single translation in their own language, and yet we in the West who speak English, I think I must have access to more than 50 different translations just on my mobile phone. Yes, and that's uh, one of the uh, wonderful things about modern technology. We have, with just a few taps of our fingers on our phone, access not only to all of those English translations, but also to translations from languages around the world. One of the responsibilities, I think, that we have in the English-speaking world is to help support and sponsor the translation, the ongoing translation work in the smaller languages where translation is still underway for the very first time. So for instance, with every copy of the New Living Translation that is sold, Tyndale House makes a contribution to Wycliffe Bible Translators because Wycliffe over the past 75 years has been working in the small languages where uh, they haven't had a translation. And more recently, a Wycliffe affiliate called The Seed Company is helping people translate the Bible in their own mother tongue. And it's become uh, a mushroom kind of effect. Uh, There are so many new translations underway, and Tyndale House Publishers and Tyndale House Foundation make significant gifts and grants every year to those organizations to help them get that work done. Mm. You're obviously uh, responsible for publishing Bibles and and books, and I wanted to talk a bit about what happens on the other end once someone's bought a Bible, because a lot of the statistics that I'm seeing, uh, both in the UK and the US, would suggest that actually people aren't, even Christians, aren't engaging with the Bible. We aren't actually reading the Bible uh, nearly as much as, as we're used to, or perhaps we should. Does that concern you? Well, yes, it certainly concerns me, and it should concern all of us who are serious about our faith. When you think about the fact that the Bible is the Word of God, the God who created the universe has given his message to mankind in written form, Mm -hmm. it seems like we ought to pay attention to it. But you're right, it's all too easy Uh, just to leave the Bible on the shelf or unopened on our phone and 
get on with our daily lives. So a challenge for all of us is to actually get into the Word of God on a regular basis. The other element of this I wanted to touch on briefly was how your books and Bibles are sold, because one would imagine the landscape has changed quite drastically in recent decades. I mean, it certainly has has in this country. We know that there are less and less Christian bookshops. They're finding it harder, and not indeed just the Christian retailers, but the uh, the mainstream uh, retailers are struggling as well. And a, a common thing that's blamed is obviously the, the internet and Amazon, and we can now go online and very quickly and easily buy books in other ways rather than walking into a store. So how does that affect you as a publisher when it comes to, okay, we've, we've published this book, but how do we get out there? How do we sell it? Um, are you concerned about the uh, the, the state of, of Christian retailing um, in, in the US in particular? Yes, and in a sense, I'm concerned about retailing in general because Amazon is out to take over the entire world. And in every area of specialty retailing, uh, those folks are feeling the impact of Amazon because it's so easy to buy anything from a book to a chainsaw to a refrigerator on Amazon. And all of those specialty retailers are feeling the, the effects of that. And that's certainly true in the in the world of books. You may remember, you're young enough, maybe you don't remember when <laughs> Amazon first got started. I but did, they, just about, yes. They, they started as a book distributor. Uh, they did, distributor. yes. It was just books, wasn't it? That's right. And Jeff Bezos uh, set out to become the largest, what he called the largest bookstore in the world. Mm. Well, that happened very quickly. Mm. And now he's just about the largest everything <laughs> in terms of retail distribution. Yeah. So the challenge for all publishers is how do we get products in front of people so that they can see, oh yes, this is a book that I would like to buy. And you're right, there are not as many bookshops as there used to be. And uh, at Tyndale House, we're working hard to go direct to consumers. It's still a very small part of our business. But we feel the, uh, the necessity of communicating direct with our consumers because they're just, you know, in, in uh, thousands of towns and cities across the country, there are no bookshops. Mm. So where are people going to find out about our books? That's one of the biggest challenges mm. that all publishers are facing. You say that Amazon is, is uh, taking over the world, but... Is that not a good thing from your perspective? It's another outlet where your books are sold? Well, yes, yes and no. Uh, Amazon is now our largest trading partner at Tyndale House, and that's probably true for most publishers. But, um, and I'll speak as a consumer, and certainly if my wife were here, she would say she uses Amazon practically every day to buy things because they're that good at providing this wide array of products and get it to your doorstep uh, the next day. But uh, it also concerns me because it puts so much power in the hands of that one organization. 
Um, in this country, we hear a lot of statistics about the state of Christianity and the church. And it seems like almost every month that goes by, there's a new survey that suggests less and less people are going to church, less people are identifying as Christians. And people have commented that Europe is kind of ahead in this process of secularization. And in America, there's maybe 10 years behind. But people have argued that America is going in the same direction. I'd, I'd like to hear from from you as someone who, who's worked in the, in the Christian publishing world for all of your life and so has interacted with church leaders and with Christians across America. What, what is the current feeling uh, in your country when it comes to the future of Christianity? Well, Sam, that's a, a good question. And when we look at the trends, we do see the same thing happening. Uh, church attendance is going down nowhere near as small as it is here in the UK but it is going down uh, decade by decade. And just recently, some of the statistics show that uh, there's a large proportion, maybe as many as 20 or 30% of the U.S. population that identify as having no religious affiliation whatsoever. Doesn't mean they're atheists, but if you ask them, are you a Christian, are you Hindu, are you Muslim, their answer is, no, I'm I'm none of those things. Yeah. So, do are are there answers emerging from this? I mean, if we agree that things aren't looking good, um, are there signs of life that fill you with hope? Well, when I look at the um, way so many churches are working to reach out to young people, in particular, that's right. encouraging to me, because. Um, the young people obviously represent the future of the church or the future of the non-church. Mm -hmm. So let's do everything we can to make sure that young people are uh, attracted to churches. And a, a significant challenge that we have is for kids like me who grew up in the church, how do we um, work with them so that the faith becomes their own personal faith. And as they reach adulthood, they choose to continue being involved in church. And as they get married and have, have children, raise their children in the church. There are all too many kids who have grown up in the church, and by the time they're out of university or even just starting university, they say, you know what, that's my parents' thing. I'm just not interested. Mm, yeah. Um, mentioned at the beginning that by some measurements, at least Tyndale House may be the, the largest Christian publisher in the world. Um, Not the largest publisher, but the largest privately held. The largest privately held. Yeah. Some, of, some of the other companies in our industry are owned by big um, conglomerate companies, but um, we've always been proud of the fact that we're mm. privately held. So how do you maintain that? that how do you maintain that position? Well, you know, it's interesting. When I say we're privately held, our listeners might think that that means that the Taylor family owns Tyndale House Publishers. But in fact, uh, 18 years ago, my parents, who did own the company outright, they gave it away. They gave it to the nonprofit Tyndale House Foundation. So Tyndale House Publishers, a for-profit company, is owned by Tyndale House Foundation, the nonprofit organization. Mm. And ultimately, it's the responsibility of the boards of directors of these two entities to make sure that we're hiring the right people 
so that we maintain <clears throat> the uh, distinctive that we've always had as a Christian company. Mm. I imagine that's uh, a huge uh, weight of responsibility, though, for you personally. I mean, you mentioned your father and this amazing history. Um, does does that weigh heavily on you, that this sense of legacy that you've inherited? Yes, it does. And when I meet with my board of directors uh, four times a year, one of the agenda items every single meeting is uh, looking at executive succession. Mm. We have a team of uh, eight members of our executive team currently. And for each one, we've, we keep asking ourselves, if this individual were to leave Tyndale or were hit by a bus, do we have somebody coming up within the organization who's being trained to take on larger responsibilities? Mm. So yes, that is a very significant yeah. part of my responsibility as CEO, both of the publishing company and of the foundation. What does the average week look like for the CEO of Tyndale? Is there such a thing as an average week? I'm not sure that there is. I get involved in everything from some editorial projects uh, to being involved in investments for our foundation. Back in the years when we were uh, creating the New Living Translation, I was spending as much as half my time on the editorial side of the creation of that translation. I had a position that we called the chief stylist. So with any verse in the New Living Translation, I can look at it and kind of reconstruct in my mind what was our thought process in coming up with the way that verse was translated because I was involved in literally every word of every verse of that entire translation. Wow. There was, um, there was a Christian speaker in this country, I don't think it's alive anymore, but he would often pray for the translation of the Bible, uh, which is quite an unusual thing. I personally have not met many Christians who would think to add that to their prayer list, but it is interesting to think about. I mean, you mentioned chief stylist, so you really had a very hands-on job, in, as you say, in, in translating the Bible. What's the atmosphere like in in a kind of room full of people who are charged with doing something like that. I mean, again, is, is there a huge weight of responsibility in thinking, you know, millions of people could read this translation of the Bible and I want to be faithful to what God said. That's, yes. that's a huge weight. It is a huge responsibility. And whenever a group of us met to work together, we always began with prayer. And we asked God, give us clarity of perspective because we wanted to make sure we understood what does this Hebrew text mean? What does this Greek text mean? And how would we say it today mm. in regular, everyday English? Mm. Back when uh, Billy Graham first got excited about living letters and the living Bible, he would hold it up on television and say, it reads just like today's newspaper. And that's true of the New Living Translation as well. So uh, we would ask ourselves when we were sitting around the translation table, how would a, uh, a shopper in Kmart who picks up this Bible, how would she understand what we're saying here? And if our response was, we're not sure she would understand it, well then let's go back mm -hmm. and work on it some more mm -hmm. to make sure that it comes through that clearly. Yes. Um, so what's been the best day of your career and what's been the worst? Oh boy, back in the early days of Tyndale House, uh, my dad was so generous, he 
uh, almost sank the company because he had so many ideas that he wanted to uh, create. He started a little chain of bookshops. He started a wholesale business. He started a a publishing company here in the UK uh, called Kingsway Publications. And one of the worst days of uh, my publishing career, as I look back on it, was when we came just this close to going into bankruptcy. And uh, it took us a long, long time to grow our way out of that. Hmm. What was it that that led up to that point? Was it just overstretching with all these different... Yes, overstretching, but also from the very beginning, going all the way back to Living Letters, my dad uh, wanted to pay a royalty on Living Letters, all books that are sold have a royalty, a part of, part of the uh, sales proceeds that goes back to the author. And even though my father had worked for years on living letters and then the living Bible, he said, the Bible is God's book. God should get the royalties. Well, you can't exactly make a check out to <laughs> God and address it to heaven. So uh, as second best, that was why he created Tyndale House Foundation so that the royalties from the Living Bible could go yeah. into the nonprofit foundation and then be given away to mm-hmm. other charities all around the world. But in his generosity, he made a commitment to give way too much royalty to the foundation and not enough was being kept in the publishing company to provide for the growth mm-hmm. of the company. Mm-hmm. So that was one of the reasons right. that we almost went under. I mean, of all the reasons to almost go under, I think generosity is quite a good reason, <laughs> just just from a Christian perspective. Uh, nevertheless, that, that can't have been an easy time. But the, the best day? Well, there have been lots and lots of good days. But uh, when we launched the New Living Translation back in 1996, that was uh, very exciting because I personally had been so deeply involved in that project And then, uh, interestingly, our Bible translation committee met what we thought was going to be one last time after the NLT had first been printed. And the other members of the committee said, this translation is so good, it's a shame not to make it even better. And I said, well, what does that look like? What do you have in mind? Let's go back and look at every single verse once again and see if we can make it even better. Wow. So we went back to work and for uh, the next five or six years, went through the whole process all over again and brought out uh, a second edition of the NLT, which is the one that's uh, available now. We made literally thousands of changes between the first edition and the second edition, all with an eye toward making the translation as absolutely accurate as we could and yet still as readable as it could be. That was my interview with Mark Taylor from Tyndale House. I do hope you enjoyed that conversation. And also Ruth Jackson, you heard earlier, interviewing Dan and Joe Watson from Hillsong. 
That's all we've got time for on the show today. But we will be back at the same time, same place next week with another great interview for you right here on the Profile Podcast. If you haven't already, we'd really appreciate it if you'd give us a rating and a review wherever you found this podcast. would be great to have your feedback in that way. So do let us know what you think. And if you're new to the Profile Podcast, then why not check out our back catalogue as well? We've got over 100 interviews with leading Christians from all walks of life. And just finally, before we go, you can still request a free copy of the latest edition of Premier Christianity magazine. Premier Christianity sponsors this show and makes it all possible. I'm the editor of Premier Christianity. I'd love you to have a free sample copy. You can get the latest issue, over 90 pages worth of content with some great interviews, features, reviews, news, columnists, loads more great stuff like that. The UK's leading Christian magazine, get a free copy premierchristianity.com that's the website premierchristianity.com and simply click on get me a free copy type your details in and we will send one to you that's it for now but we will see you next time